You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Well, good morning. I wonder, um, have we got any South Africans in the room this morning? Oh, there's a few uh, shy hands. Um, I'm deeply sorry for what your country went through yesterday. On the plus side, have we got any Japanese people in the room this morning? Toby, perhaps. I'm sure you had a big celebration. Um, If you have no idea what I'm going on about, we are right now in the middle of the Rugby World Cup, which I'm proud that our city, London, is hosting multiple games. Wembley Stadium, Twickenham, I think even the Olympic Stadium are hosting some games. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the opening ceremony that was on, I think it was Friday night. Um, It was on the TV, ITV3. There was a scene um, in the opening ceremony where... Um, many people formed like a human pyramid, a big tall pyramid. And out of this pyramid appeared the jewel of the rugby world, the Rugby World Cup. And as it was lifted high, it glistened and the crowd went wild. That's what the tournament is all about. That is what the hard work over the next few weeks will be all about. Well, as Christians, we have our own jewel. And it's far more impressive than the Rugby World Cup. Of course, I'm talking about the gospel, and I'm excited that we're spending um, the eight weeks of this series lifting up our jewel, the gospel, and we can all gaze at its beauty and get excited about how it's changed our lives and about sharing that good news with other people. So we're in week two. Um, This week, we are looking at how the gospel saves us in an instant. Pete last week defined what the gospel is, and he brought in lots of different elements about how, yes, the gospel changes our lives in an instant, but it also goes on continually changing us over our lives. Today, we're going to zoom in and look at how does the gospel save us in a moment. Now, I believe that it comes down to three main things. First, we see Jesus. Then, we believe in Jesus, and then we receive from Jesus. So let's start with seeing Jesus. We're going to turn to um, 2 Corinthians 4. A couple of slides on if you can, Isaac. The verse will come up in a few moments. It'll catch up, don't worry. 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of Christ. What's going on here? Well, this word blinded and the God of this age. We're talking about Satan, the devil, that's the God of this age. And he will do anything to stop us seeing who Jesus is. He will make him into a fictional character. Maybe he didn't even live. He will turn him into just a moral teacher. Maybe he had some good things to say. But we believe he's the son of God with power. And it takes it that extra step. Many of the world are blinded to this fact. And it's not their fault. That's a result of being fallen, and we'll get into that. But on the good side, we see that God makes his light shine into our hearts so that we have his light. So there's an opportunity to be changed by the gospel. Now, I use this phrase, um, saved by through seeing Jesus, as if it's something to do with us. As if we've suddenly stumbled upon this, oh, there's this Jesus thing, and it changes us. No, the truth is... He has been pursuing us through history. It's not that he's just suddenly now decided to turn up. The truth is, even before you born, Jesus has been pursuing you. We can go right back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they decided to turn from God and disobey God. 
they started humans on a trajectory of doing our own thing, thinking we know our way and it's better than God's way. And you know what, the Genesis, as you read Genesis, we don't, we don't do any better. It gets progressively worse. We see Abel killing, no, sorry, Cain killing Abel only a few chapters later, the first murder. It even gets to a point where God looks at the world and says, there's nothing good there. I'm going to wipe them all out. And Noah and the flood. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. Just as an aside, scientific evidence these days is pointing strongly that the flood was an actual thing that took place. I was only this week on the BBC, there was an interview with a, a paleontologist, someone who studies fossils. And this guy, it's a secular guy, doesn't believe in God, but he was making the case that as far as he's concerned, there was a change in the fossil record of about 12,000 years ago, where there must have been a cataclysmic event, something like a flood, that wiped out everything on the earth. This is a secular guy saying, you know what, there was probably a flood about 12,000 years ago. And you read the Bible... There was a flood about 12,000 years ago. And we see time and time again, as scientific evidence comes out, the stories in the Bible are true, and they're becoming more and more true as the, as the scientific evidence points towards it. So that's Noah. It gets to a point by chapter 11 in Genesis. I'm sure you're familiar with the story where mankind has got to such a point that they decide to build a monument. It's called the Tower of Babel, to themselves, to their own achievements. And it's like the people that are on the earth are raising their finger, a big tower, to say, God, you know what you think? This is what we think of you. Can it get any worse than that? And as you read Genesis, you're left in suspense. How can a God save a people like that? And suddenly the the, the scene shifts, and there's a man, Abraham, and God comes to him, and he says, I'm going to give you a family. And that family is going to be a great nation. And out of that nation, there's going to be born the Christ. And that Christ is going to die for the sins of the world, is going to rise again, and I'm going to bring my people through him back into my family. And you get the glimpse of what the gospel is about. It's about humankind running this way and God pursuing us and calling us back. So when we talk about seeing Jesus, it's not that he's just around and we might catch a glimpse of him. He's actively pursuing you. And I believe... There's no more um, obvious place where you see God revealing himself to us than in nature. Um, there's a verse in Romans 1.20. It says this. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they, that's us, are without excuse. In other words, God has been revealing himself in nature and creation to try and grab our attention. That's just one of the many ways that he tries to grab your attention. Um, For me, one of the most beautiful places in the world are the French Alps. Um, It might be something because I'm a a big cycling fan, so I love watching um, in the summer the cyclists make their way up the Alps. But I can't understand how you cannot look at that and come to the conclusion that there's design behind the creation. That does not look random to me. The way those beautiful snowy peaks come up from the green meadows and are perfectly framed in the lake. The best painter in the world couldn't come up with a scene like that. All they can do is copy. But we know there's a creator who's able to brushstroke beautiful scenes like that. Now for you, it might be looking at the cosmos, the stars and the 
great expanse of the universe. For others, it might be looking at the microscopic detail in DNA and how it all fits together to create life. I don't know what it is for you, but either way, God is trying to catch your attention so you catch a glimpse of him so that you see Jesus. There's a beautiful song, Amazing Grace, um, that was written by John Newton. And uh, this is the, the first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I wonder, have you caught a glimpse of Jesus? Has he grabbed your attention? Maybe right now there's a, there's a new sense of seeing him in a way for the first time. That's God speaking to you. I believe God will continue to speak to you um, over this coming week. The second element of um, being saved by the gospel is believing in Jesus. It's not simply enough just to see the beauty in nature or just to be around Christians or even to come to church. You have to cross the line and say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. In other words, if you don't believe in Jesus right now, or before you did, we all stood condemned already. That means when we die, we're going to hell. Hell is a place that has no God. It has no good things in it because all good things come from God. It's not necessarily that fiery picture that we imagine maybe what the, um, the, the artists have painted in terms of hell. It's a place where God is not. Therefore, we're outside of his love, outside of his comfort, outside of all the health and good things that God brings. It's not a great place to be and you spend eternity there. That's the truth. We don't like talking about hell because it's, it's completely countercultural. Does anyone want to say to their friend that they're going to hell? No. But then we look at these verses and we say, whoever does not believe stands condemned today. And that's the truth of it. So it's not merely enough just to see Jesus, but to believe in him takes you from standing condemned to being standing in the righteousness of God. And that's, um, we're going to come on to that in a moment. You don't kind of just drift across the line of faith. You know, you, you, it's not a case that you come to church long enough that um, one day you, you kind of drift into believing. It's an active choice. So I, I just challenge you, think about, have you made that active choice? Or are you just kind of going with the Christian flow? We'll come back to that later. For me, um, I got saved on a paper round when I was 15 years old. I remember um, the street, it was called the Sutton Road in my hometown of Warsaw. And um, God had been speaking to me for a couple of weeks before that. I'd always seen Jesus. I always knew the, the stories. I was raised in the church. But I guess I hadn't ever given my life to him. So although I believed in Jesus in terms of he existed, I hadn't given him my life and said, I believe in you. And that happened to me just walking down the road one day, delivering papers. I gave my life to Jesus. And everything changed as a result of that moment. I can honestly say it wasn't just a throwaway thing. Something happened that day. Something exchanged in my heart. And that's because 
I received something from Jesus. What do we need to receive? Let's find out. So we look at Romans 1. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed. It comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. There it is. You need to receive the gift of righteousness. So not only do we need to catch a glimpse of Jesus and see him for who he is and believe in him, at that point, in an instant, in a moment, we receive righteousness from God. It's an incredible miracle. And it doesn't make any sense at all. Yet through faith we believe it. And I know as my life has been changed as a result, I know it's true. I'm sure there's many people here today that can testify to the truth in that statement. As we become unblind, we see for the first time, and our hearts are changed, everything is made new. So why do we need to be made righteous? Well, first of all, um, like it or not, you're a sinner twice over. First of all, you're a sinner because of Adam and Eve. There's this inherited sin through humankind. We don't need to teach a child how to sin. They get it. It's programmed into them. We, you know what? We love to sin. It's like a, our favorite hobby. As humankind, we're, we're built in such a way that we love to worship ourselves and do what we want. The second one is, yeah, we, we do actually sin ourselves. I mean, is there anyone here that can put their hand up and say they are without sin? It's not a chance. Solomon, the um, wisest man who ever lived, said, um, there is no man living who does not sin. And Paul um, says it like this in these famous verses from uh, Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means you, it means me, it means every single person who's ever lived. We're all guilty. Number two, because... You are spiritually dead before you believe in Jesus. Now, we can't blame the world for not believing in Jesus because they're blind. You know, when you, have you noticed this when you talk about spiritual things to your friends? Maybe talk about uh, the Bible or Jesus. They're, they're a bit numb to it. Well, it's because they're spiritually dead. A dead person has no feelings. They don't get excited about anything. That's because as far as they're concerned, there is no God. They're blind to it. So it's completely common sense that they don't get excited when you talk about Jesus. But when they catch a glimpse of Jesus, they start on that journey to believing and receiving something from Jesus, which changes everything. And thirdly, you are much worse than you think. Um, I'm sure this um, quote has been used before, but this is Tim Keller. Um, The gospel is this. You are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. What an amazing quote. You know, it winds me up, these uh, even Christian self-help books or courses that try and convince you that you're a good person. You know, you say things about yourself enough times, I'm, I'm, I'm wonderful, I'm great, I love butterflies, I can run in the field. Whatever it is, okay, to try and convince you you're a good person. You know what the truth is? You are wretched before God. You are so disgusting to God in terms of your sin that he finds it even struggle to look at you. That's the truth. 
But you know what the other truth is? He is so amazing how much beautiful Jesus is that he overcomes all of that. So if you're struggling to understand like confidence in the gospel, I would suggest rather than trying to convince yourself you're actually good, look at how good Jesus is. And as you look at him, your life will be changed. Question. But isn't Christianity all about doing good? Well, I guess if you went on the street and you asked the average person, what is a Christian? They might answer, all right, someone who goes to church and they try and good, do good things, you know, do good to your neighbor and all of that kind of thing. That's because our culture obsesses over this um, deservedness. We like to see people get what they deserve. And um, we split people into undeserving and deserved. We do it all the time. You know, who are the job promotions going to? Oh, the ones who've worked hard for them. Who are going to get the jobs after university? The ones who've worked hard on their course. Who are going to achieve in life? The ones that have really invested in their, in their marriages and, and, and in their work and in all of life. That's, that's how we separate people in our culture. Those who deserve and those who undeserve. Well, the gospel, I love the gospel. It's so incredibly simple and utterly complex. The gospel is back to front, upside down and inside out. What do I mean by that? Well, it's back to front... You don't earn anything through life and then you get your reward at the end. You get it up front and then you live your life with Jesus. It's back to front. Upside down. Once you become a Christian, you become aware of all the kingdom values. The poor in spirit are going to inherit the earth. The first will be last and the last will be first. Servant leadership. I didn't come to lead, I came to serve. All of those kingdom values are completely topsy-turvy and they make no sense in our culture. But that's the kingdom. And inside out, it's because the gospel works from the inside out, not outside in. The gospel doesn't try to change your outside behaviors first. It comes along, takes out your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, and starts there. And ministers right into your core and works out. The gospel is completely countercultural. Um, we're going to show a, a video now. It's not that I'm more gifted than anybody else. It's this desire. Lance, right? You want all those races in America, but you don't win here. Dr. Ferrari? I want to be like one of your guys. I want to be on whatever program they're on. You just tell me what to do, I'll do it. This is science. No longer confined to Earth. Now we had learned to fly. I have my interview with Armstrong today. I just love to ride my bike. Not lacking in confidence. He recovered from cancer and turned into bloody Superman. You think that's natural? Why are you so obsessed with this? Why are you not obsessed with this? Your job is to protect Lance. Okay, guys, the bar's open. When you say, I can't go any further, say to yourself, I'm flying. I'm flying. Lance Armstrong, handsome young, inspirer of millions, cannot possibly be a cheat. He's clearly doping, and nobody else can see it. Lance. Did you ever visit Ferrari? Can I get a yes or no on that? Extraordinary allegations must be met with extraordinary proof. I've never tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. I am the most tested athlete on the face of the planet. I have never tested positive 
to performance enhancing drugs. I used to believe in this sport, and Armstrong is killing it. I like this. I like somebody trying to go faster than me. I know your boy was cheating. If he gets caught, I'll be back. How many times do I have to say it? I've never tested positive for performance enhancing drugs. You sold the bikes to pay for drugs? You and me were all on the program. I didn't sign up for this. I hope you realize what we're up against. See David Walsh. I have the money and the power to destroy you. Can't censor this. It's too important. I want to confess. I'm Lance Armstrong, and I will not be brought down. So that's a, a film that's about to come out called The Program. Now, why have I choose that example? Yeah, I like cycling, so I did want to get some cycling on the screen. But the truth is, if I had used the example of um, Islam to say... As a, a Muslim, how do you achieve your greatest goal in life? It's to be a good Muslim. Or I said, maybe Buddhists or Hindus, to say um, what happens in the afterlife depends on what you do in this life in terms of karma. You just throw it back at me and say, you know what, that's religion. You throw Christianity in there and that is all religion. We don't believe in that as a modern society anymore. It's about what the individual believes, what they want to achieve in life. Well... Let me introduce you to the fastest growing, the biggest religion in the Western society. It's called the religion of me. What do I mean by that? Well, Lance Armstrong. What was his goal in life? It was to stand on top of the podium and to be the champion of the Tour de France, the yellow jersey holder. And he, as a result, went on a program, a way of achieving things in life in order to stand there and to take the glory. In other words, we haven't progressed much further than the Tower of Babel, really, have we? We're still worshipping ourselves and doing the religion of me. And yet, we hold up Lance Armstrong, and we say at one point he was deserving, and the world loved him, but as soon as he fell, didn't we all love to line up and point the finger? You don't deserve those wins anymore. It's human nature. We love to think of life in terms of deserving and undeserving. However, (laughs) um, the good news is that the righteousness of God comes, not because you deserve it, not because you're on a program in life, because it's a free gift up front. You know, Lance didn't need to do all that stuff to his body in order to achieve in life. He just needed to look at Jesus and say, I believe in you. And he would have got the righteousness, the greatest gift to mankind for free. That's the tragedy of that story. And everyone's got one of those stories. Uh, Martin Luther, who was uh, a reformer, a theologian, um, I added the headphones. That's what what I think uh, Martin Luther would have been like as a modern-day monk. He'd have been um, saved by grace, faith. He can get away with wearing Beats headphones. Um, Luther helpfully said, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. And next week we will look at how the gospel doesn't just leave us in a state of being saved. It comes and it helps us through life and it changes us as a result. I won't steal anyone's thunder, whoever's doing next week's preach. Um, Another question. How could I miss the salvation of God? Well, helpfully, the Bible gives us a, a great story to help us understand this. It's the parable of the lost son otherwise known as the, uh, the prodigal son. In that story, there are two sons, an older brother and a younger brother. I'm sure you know it well. The younger brother, rebel, goes away from the father, goes to, um, 
takes his inheritance early, goes off to a faraway land and spends it, drugs, booze, money, the lot. He goes wild off the rails. And then he's poor, he hasn't got anything, so he returns to the father. Meanwhile, there's an older brother. He's the goody of the family. He's worked hard his whole life. He supported his father. He's been a long time. He really thinks he deserves what's coming to him um, when his father eventually hands on um, the kingdom to him. The younger brother returns back home and the father embraces him and throws a party and a feast. And in the Bible, feasts stand for heaven. In other words, it's redemption. He's accepted the younger brother back in. And then we see the older brother. He's standing outside the party. He's not in heaven. You know, we can go both ways. We can rebel against God and miss the salvation through um, not really ever seeing the Father, not ever really seeing Jesus and being off. Equally, probably more applicable to us in the room. We can be like the older brother. We can be around the Father and the family the whole life, but just not get it. Not get that it's not through what the older brother has earned to get into the family. It's actually through the love of the Father and generosity and grace. It's not by being good, and it's not by being bad. Can I be sure I'm really forgiven? Well, it's a good job that it's, it's not reliant on you, but it's reliant on God. Again, there's a, there's a great story in the Bible which will help us illustrate this. So we're going back to the time of Moses. Um, I think a few months back, um, we did the series on Moses, and we got to the Passover. And in the Passover, effectively the people of God, they um, were told to take a lamb, um, to kill it and to eat it, and take some of the blood and to paint it on top of their doorposts. Okay? So this represents the doorpost. Because God's going to come in the night and he's going to kill all the firstborn that are there who don't have the blood of the lamb above you. Now, imagine for a moment you're an Israelite and you're there. You've had your meal. You've, you've painted the blood on top of your doorpost and you're waiting. You're not going to sleep, are you? You're going to be up all night waiting for this moment. And as you're there, you're looking at the blood and you're thinking... It looks a bit brown now. I'm not, should I paint a bit more up? Is it, is it sufficient for my salvation? And then you hear down the street, boom! Something's happened. It gets a bit closer, boom! And maybe next door, boom! And you're there and you're waiting and you're, be, you're beneath the doorpost. And then boom! Next door, it's gone past you. Hang on, maybe God's missed me. He's going to come around, circle around. And then boom! And it's gone. And you realize that the blood of the Lamb is sufficient for your salvation. It's not dependent upon the person underneath it, i.e. you or me. It's about this blood here. So, can you be sure you're really forgiven? Have you got the blood on the doorpost? If you have, I tell you, you are forgiven 100%. It doesn't rely on anything else you're going to do the rest of your life. It doesn't rely on anything that you've done. All it relies upon is you've seen Jesus, you've believed in Jesus, and you've received his righteousness. Um, I loved 
uh, Martha's word uh, or verse in the worship where, um, you know, God turns up and he says, I have made all things new. It is done. He say paid in full is another way of saying it is done. That is effectively what the blood says. Paid in full. There's no turning back. So what choice do I need to make? Well, Paul presents the choice really well in Romans 10. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Your choice is simple. Either you establish your own righteousness, like Lance Armstrong did, like millions of other people in this city do every day, or you rely on Jesus' righteousness. I can guarantee that Jesus' righteousness is way better than anything you could ever do yourself. It's simple choice. Don't settle for being the second thief on the cross who is merely happy to be close to Jesus in those dying moments. Whereas the other thief turned to Jesus and said, I believe in you, I want to be in your kingdom. It's not enough just to be near Jesus. We have to believe in him. So the choice to you is do you believe in Jesus? Have you crossed that line of faith and had your moment with him? Have you exchanged your righteousness for his? Another question that comes to mind is, once in, can I ever be thrown out of God's family? Well, I want to say up front on this one, uh, I'm a Calvinist. That means um, the teachings of John Calvin, um, who was a a theologian uh, several hundred years ago. Um, That's the line that I come on. I do recognize that there are other forms of thought in here. If you're sitting here today and you've got a different opinion on that, we can be friends. This isn't one that we can fall out on at all. I'm just going to give you my personal opinion on this. And also, I'm not going to turn to the Bible to prove it because I recognize that we could spend literally all week just on this topic, looking at the verses. And for as many verses that say you can't lose your salvation, there are as many verses that say or seem to suggest that you can. So, I'm going to use an illustration instead. And for this, I need my daughter. So this is CJ, my nine-month-old daughter. She is in my family. She's my daughter. Not through anything that she's done herself, but because of an inherited birthright. In the same way, you have been born again into a new family. Not through anything you've done, but because of the father. And I'm the father to CJ. Is there anything that CJ could ever do that would remove her right as a daughter? No. Yeah, there might be some tough times ahead. Luckily, we're not there yet. (laughs) However, (laughs) however, there is nothing she could do that could ever mean she's no longer my daughter. She's now in my family. In the same way, you, as a believer in Christ, have been adopted into a new family. There's nothing you can do that would make that isn't sufficient for the blood of Jesus to cover you that would mean you've been thrown out of the family. That's my personal opinion, and I believe Scripture speaks to that. Question, how can I receive the gift of righteousness? Well, Romans 10, verse 9, um, which was actually read in our prayer meeting um, before Sunday, um, which was great just to be confirmed that this is where we're going to land. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. At the end, there'll be an opportunity for you to pray a prayer which effectively does that, to confess with your mouth, to believe in the Lord Jesus, and to receive his righteousness. Let me just take a moment, though, to demonstrate what happens at the point of when you believe and how you receive this righteousness. In here, I have several books. Some of them are large books. Excuse me why I take them out. These books represent everything that maybe you've done, said, thought in your life. They're a record. They're a record of what you've done. Maybe this book represents everything you've physically done in your life. You're not reading my book, I can tell you that. There are secrets in here. There are things which cause a barrier between me and God. You know, this book which is called Preach the Word, that has nothing to do with this example. But this book represents everything I thought. It's a bigger book than this one. I tell you, I definitely don't want you to read that book. This one might represent all the things that I've said to people. There's things that I'm ashamed that I've said. There's things which make it difficult to have a relationship with a loving God in that one. And these books, they become heavy and a burden And they represent my life. They represent the things that I'm going to stand before God and say, God, look at my life. And there might be some things in here which I think, you know, I did all right on. You know what God says to that? They're like filthy menstrual rags. Excrement. They're worth nothing. My offering to God is worth nothing. And all they become is heavier and heavier and heavier. And I'm trying to get through life knowing that I'm carrying this type of baggage. I need a volunteer for this, maybe Mark, because he's here. Um, this, uh, this toy, which I swiped from the kids' work before um, service, represents Jesus' life. Okay, I know you're going to have to imagine hard on this one. But it's a perfect life, without sin, righteousness. You need to take great care of that one. And I'm over here, and I've got my baggage. I've got my life. And this is ultimately causing me a barrier between me and God. At the moment I believe have thrown me that one. The moment I believe, this is what happens. Do you get it? It's instant. When you get Jesus's righteousness, you don't have to think of the books anymore. They're gone. And that is what happens at the moment when you become a Christian. So don't let any lie The devil loves to lie to you, to say, you know what, not all of your sins were forgiven. What about all the sins that since you prayed the prayer you've done? And now I'm sitting in church, I'm trying to worship, and there's this stuff I've done this week. You've got got the the, the cow thing, yeah? You've got, (laughs) this is going to make no sense on the podcast, is it? You've got Jesus' life. You've exchanged it. You have his righteousness. Just some final um, comments. The Bible's quite clear on this one. Once you believe... You are to be baptized. So, yes, it's all about what he's done. But in return, Jesus just asks us to respond to him. And one of the ways we respond is by being baptized in water post being believed. And as a church, we love to baptize people. We have a great Sunday. 
we get a, a birthing pool, a big birthing pool, literally born again pool. You know, I love the terminology. And we baptize people and we celebrate that they've become a Christian. We are going to do a baptism service this autumn term. If you've never been baptized as an adult, as post-believer in water, then I encourage you, respond to Jesus. He's done so much for you. You can do one thing for him, and that's to publicly declare that my life has changed. I know when, um, back in that paper round when I was 15, um, my next response was to go to my Baptist church, which I was part of, and say, I want to get baptized. And being baptized was so helpful in my life because it did, did a number of things. Firstly, it meant that I had to take my faith public. And until that point, I was just, you know, a teenager who went to church. I didn't have to really tell my friends, tell my peers. But as a result of saying I want to get baptized, I got to invite them to my baptism service. Now, not all of them came, but some of them did. It also helped me understand what had happened because I physically went under the water dead and rose again and got the new righteousness. So it helped me understand what it was that I'd been born into. So let me encourage you, think about um, getting baptized if you haven't been baptized. Either come and speak to me or Mark or Anna at the end. We'd love to get you um, booked in for that. So in conclusion, we see that this saving gospel, it comes from seeing Jesus, getting a glimpse of him, believing in who he was, and saying, Jesus, I believe in you, and then receiving this wonderful gift of righteousness that we don't deserve, but change our life forever. The gospel is both incredibly simple, it's really simple, isn't it? Yet utterly complex. We can gaze at our trophy for the rest of our lives. You know what? We'll be gazing at the trophy of the gospel for eternity, not just our lives. You want to know what we're doing in heaven? We're just looking at the gospel, thinking it is amazing and amazing. And the depth of complexity that's in there is wonderful. So I'm excited about the series we're going through. Looking forward to the coming weeks. I'm going to hand over to these guys who are going to lead us in a prayer.